This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined yet again by Carlos Miranda. Hi Carlos, how are you doing? I'm good, Duncan. How are you doing? I am not too bad. I'm doing a bit of globe trotting at the moment. I'm actually in Madrid as we speak. I'm recording from my hotel room, so I, I feel very adventurous and exotic. I was going to say, I, I could see, I just closed my eyes, and in my mind's eye, I see the little plane over the map going from London to Madrid. <laughs> You can see that little red line. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I can see the little, and the fanfare rising. I just, I, I see it. I see mm-hmm. it. They didn't, sadly, I flew here on EasyJet, so there were no screens in the back of the seats or anything. It was a, a pretty basic flight. But these days, often when you go on long haul flights, you do get those little images, don't you? When you're not using your uh, TV set on the flight to watch a movie or whatever, you can see the little plane flying over. And it it is almost exactly that same image. It's 100% that same image. 100% that was like, uh, you know, that, 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 that kind of imagery. Whoever designed those global, like, you know, uh, satellite maps had to have that in like in the back of their heads because it's clearly it's the it, it, it's it's obviously you know not exactly the same but it's it's in the same universe for sure i think so definitely you know steven spielberg or someone on his team ought to be getting a credit when they uh, when they fit those uh, tv screens into all the airplanes who knows maybe they are um so yeah i'm here in madrid you are in edinburgh uh not a million miles away from harrison ford himself i believe is he still over that way he i just i just saw on the twitters that they're now filming in italy but he was here in glasgow and the surrounding areas um where they were filming Indiana Jones five for like, I want to say like several weeks for sure. Um, you know, Glasgow, which is obviously right next to Edinburgh, like a 45 minute, you know, train ride or drive. Um, there's parts of downtown Glasgow. We were just saying that really, um, with a little bit of set dressing look like 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, New York city. So they shoot a lot of, which seems very random to me, but they, they shoot a lot of, um, like big blockbuster movies that take place in the 40s or 50s New York City in Glasgow. Because all you got to do is, you know, some period North American cars and a little set dressing uh, and window dressing. And it looks like what New York looked like 60 years ago, which is amazing. Absolutely. And presumably there's nowhere in New York that looks like that these days. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there is, if you, but you have to probably spend a lot more money than just than, than coming to Glasgow and just doing it here. And but Harrison Ford was like seen everywhere. Like he was out and about. Uh, like there were pictures in like local papers of like him trying to figure out how to order on his iPhone at like the local, like, like at like pubs and things like that, uh, with all these COVID restrictions. And so, yeah, but he was, mm-hmm. he was here and they were filming, uh, you know, like a big, at one point they were filming like a big parade that will happen in the film. Like they were like, it was a lot of extras. You know, I saw again on the Twitters, uh, you know, co- 
calls for extras and things like that. And so there was definitely a lot of activity around uh, Indiana Jones 5 in the Glasgow kind of in the like greater Glasgow area. And you weren't tempted to head over there and offer yourself as an extra to try and share a bit of screen time with Indy? Ah, buddy, I mean, was I tempted? Of course I was tempted. But between, you know, we just, uh, for uh, your intrepid listeners, um, we just moved to Edinburgh about six weeks ago. And between the move and getting the kids settled at school and trying to work in this new, you know, in, in this kind of new reality and in a new city, there was too much going on. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't think the, the, the boss wife would have appreciated me like going to Adam, uh, going to Glasgow from Edinburgh for a few days to try to be an extra in Indiana Jones. That'd be a hard one to sell your wife on, I guess. I, 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 she, she, to be fair to her, she indulges uh, my geekdom probably way more than she should. <laughs> I know when to push, Duncan. I know when to push. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe next time. Maybe Indiana Jones 6 or ex- 7 or 8. <laughs> ex- ex- <laughs> I mean, at this, how long I, Harrison Ford keeps going and how many I, I, more of them they decide to exactly, use out this, of that franchise. At some point, he'll be like, it'll be like the 1980s and he'll be a hundred years old. I mean, you know, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but like, I, I, I mean, I was obsessed with the original trilogy of Indiana Jones films as a kid. Probably the, I mean, not probably, hung hands down, aside from Star Trek, which like holds its own, it's, it's in a completely different league. You know, the original Star Wars trilogy, Willow, and the original Indiana Jones trilogy was basically what made up 80% of my childhood. So I was like wholeheartedly, you know, a Lucasfilm fanatic as a child mm-hmm. um, and, and as a teenager. And the original Indiana Jones trilogy, I mean, I definitely think that my favorite film probably, and I say this, you know, definitely, probably is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, obviously I can talk about my love for Star Trek 2, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 6, First Contact, you know. Uh, I can talk about Star Wars, Empire, Jedi. There's so many movies that I love, but I genuinely think that if you put a gun to my head and said, and said what is this, your single favorite movie of all time? I would say Raiders of Lost Ark. That is an interesting choice and a pretty popular one, I'd say. I mean, it's definitely up there in a lot of people's, you know, top 10 movies of all time kind of lists. It, it, it kind of makes those lists. I think for a lot of people, like with the Star Trek movies, some people prefer number two, some people prefer number four. I think with the indie films, it's the people who like Raiders and the people who like Last Crusade. I mean, everyone likes both of them, but, you know, you kind of fall down one way or the other. I'm not sure myself. In some ways, I think I find Last Crusade more enjoyable. And I think growing up, that's the one I actually ended up seeing more often. I have a really vivid memory of being on a scout camp, I think, and seeing it um, outdoors projected onto like a a big screen, an outdoor screening. Everyone was just sitting on the grass in some wood watching this movie and what an amazing ride it is. But um, both of them, fantastic films. And then of course, you know, there are two more that maybe... I got to disagree with you. I, I love okay. Temple of Doom. Like, I really love Temple mm-hmm. of Doom. I mean, I love Last Crusade as well. I mean, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the less said, the better. I, I, I do think that that is, you know, we live in a time when the Star Wars prequels have been revisited. And I think time has been in some ways, not always, I think in some ways it's, it, it's been good to some degree for, to the, for the prequels. I really think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I, I, let me put it this way. I have seen the original, like, three films 
probably well over a hundred times, especially as a kid. I used to run my last crusade. I, I, I owned last crusade on, I owned all of them on VHS, but my VHS mm-hmm. tape for last crusade, like I wore out the magnetic strip. That's how often I would <laughs> wow. watch, I watched it. Like, I mean, hundreds of times. Right. And I went with my friend Jordan, who was a huge Indiana Jones and Star Wars fan in London, opening night, Leicester Square, you know, Thursday, 11.59 a.m., 11.59 p.m. showing of Indiana Jones. Oh, no. And I walked out <laughs> and I really felt like I had just like someone had punched me in the head. And I sort of got I haven't seen the movie since. I just haven't been able to see it again. I really thought it was wow. so terrible. And so and I was thinking, I was like, well, maybe should I revisit some of it in preparation for this chat? And I was like, no, why would I put myself through that? Why would I stain anything that I love about this? So to me, <laughs> that movie just do, like I like it just doesn't exist. I just put it over there. Okay. And, and I have mm-hmm. I have a beautiful like coffee table making of Indiana Jones book upstairs in my office that I love. Um, and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous, but it contains the fourth film. And every time I look at it, I'm like, Ugh, why do you have to include the fourth film? So I'm not a fan <laughs> of the fourth film. And I approach and probably this is why I didn't go to like I didn't, you know, talking about knowing when to push. It wasn't like they were filming Star Trek down the street, you know, or in a city over, Mm. you know, they're not filming. And so I was I'm I'm so, you know, the fact there's a new director that I don't I just I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm approaching this movie like a very wounded puppy. I like I don't I I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Will I go see it opening night? I mean, probably, but maybe not. And so I'm, I, I, I am, I am not even cautiously optimistic. I just, I just, I want the best for it because I love Harrison Ford. I love the character. I don't want them to do anything bad with it, but I am not, uh, you know, I want it. I, I hope it's amazing. Let's just put it that way. I'm not a hater. I love the things that I love. And, you know, I, I can very much compartmentalize if there's a, an episode of Trek or a, or, a, or a Star Wars movie that I don't particularly care for, and they definitely are. I just, you know, I just focus on the things that I love and I just don't, uh, uh, I, I just won't revisit it. Well, you know, hopefully the Indiana Jones films basically have the opposite uh, situation to the Star Trek films. People always used to talk about the curse of the odd-numbered Star Trek films. Maybe with the indie films, okay, I understand you love Temple of Doom, but, you know, most people would say the odd-numbered ones are the good ones so far. So maybe number five is going to be a return to form. I would love that. (laughs) I have to say, I mean, I rewatched all these films recently and I had only ever seen Kingdom of the Crystal Skull once at the cinema and never thought I'd go back and watch it again. It's not as bad as I remembered it being. And, you know, in some ways, watching all four of them in succession, it kind of felt a little bit more of a piece. I mean, visually, there are some things that don't quite work. Some of the CGI and so on, it, it feels out of place with the other films. It, it feels like it comes from a different era and it doesn't fit. But a lot of the wackiness, a lot of the silly ideas. I mean, these are quite silly films. Last Crusade has a lot of silly ideas in it and, uh, you know, quite light humour. I think in some ways, obviously, the expectations you had going into that film were probably impossible to meet. Maybe it's good that you're going into the next one, having managed those expectations, keeping them fairly low, and you might be pleasantly surprised. I mean, I'm not going to bat for Crystal Skull. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a great movie, uh, but I just... I don't think maybe it's quite as bad as it seemed at the time, because I think expectations at the time were so high from a lot of us. And and I felt the same. I mean, I'm not by any means as big an indie fan as you are, but I grew up with these films. I remember watching them all as a kid. I loved all three of them. Um, And it it very much didn't give me 
what I had felt growing up from those other three, but then maybe it's never going to. And in some ways, these are the same kind of debates we have about Star Trek. You know, maybe no piece of new Star Trek is going to give us quite what we had growing up with it. You know, those experiences we had before, however good it is. Um, unless in the case of something like Picard, I feel like for me, that's the show that's come closest. And that's when it does lean into this uh, aspect of the passage of time. You know, yeah. we've had old man Picard. We've, we were talking last time about old man Bond. Now we're going to get old man Indy. I mean, he ages in all the previous films, but Harrison Ford is a lot older than he was, you know, a lot older than he was in Crystal Skull and certainly a lot older than he was in those classic movies. No, no, completely. But, you know, I think just not to go on off on a, too much of a tangent, but I think I agree with you. You know, I, the, the Star Trek that I have loved most is the Star Trek that either, like Lower Decks, for example, that leans mm-hmm. hard on 90s nostalgia. Sure, it takes in a completely different direction. And I actually love Lower Decks. I really do. And I, I'm kind of mystified that that show exists because who else <laughs> loves that show besides us that like grew up obsessed with 90s Star with like Berman era Star Trek, you know? Um, yeah. but, but I love Lower Decks and I love Picard be very much as a sequel to, you know, next generation and those movies and to, to a lesser degree, but very much a sequel to Voyager. And so I, you know, I, I love those shows. I, um, you know, disco is not my favorite at all. Like I watch it every week and I look forward to watching it, but I, I, you know, I, I look at disco and I just see issues everywhere, which it, which is really interesting to me because I enjoy it very much. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I, you know, I have seen every episode of Picard now multiple times. I rewatch Lower Decks on a regular basis. Nine times out of ten, with the exception of some of the earlier episodes in season one of Disco, you know, I watch it when it's live and I engage with everybody on Twitter. Um, I don't revisit Disco at all. Like, not even, like, I don't even mm-hmm. want to. And I think, and it's not because they're taking New Trek into a different direction. I just, I find it really... Like, I have a lot of issues, not issues, that's too strong a word, but like, I look at disco and I'm like, you know, it, we, we would benefit tremendously from, from more time with the crew. You get away with it in Picard because Picard has all this backstory. Seven has all this backstory. All the other characters relate to them. You know, Lower Decks is such like a play on what came before. And I appreciate what they're trying to do with disco, taking it in a, in a brand new kind of direction. And now in the 32nd century, which I really like and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, disco would, in my view, humble opinion, um, you know, I think disco would really benefit from having a handful of episodes like, you know, like, like Captain's Holiday where like nothing much happens and you're just kind of like, I think one of the greatest episodes of disco is music. I mean, what is it? Magic to make the sanest man go mad in like the fifth or sixth episode of the first season where it's kind of like a standalone episode with a bad guy in Harry Mudd, but you get to like spend time with the crew. And I just, I think that like, they're too worried about like, what's the big bad that's going to destroy the galaxy this week or or, like this season. And we have 10 episodes to solve the problem. I just, I like the characters in Disco. I would love to slow down and just get to know them more. Anyway, rant over. Apologies. That's totally fair enough. And, you know, 20 minutes in or whatever we are, finally, at least one of us has mentioned the episode we're meant to be talking about, correct, uh, correct. which is Captain Soliday. So, you know, I hold my hands up uh, for the length of that digression as well. But um, we are talking about an episode of Berman Era Trek. We are talking about an episode that you and I both grew up on. Um, and I think it's an interesting one. You're right. It's not part of some overarching uh, plot strand. It's not Picard and the Borg. It is a kind of character focused episode looking at the 
the captain in a new light. And of course, we know that the genesis of this episode came essentially from Patrick Stewart. It was from his feeling that Picard was getting a bit boring, essentially. You know, all the things that in some ways we love about Picard, that he's quite intellectual, he's quite cool, he's a diplomat. Stuart was finding a bit dull. He wanted him to do more exciting things. He kept saying, you know, he's supposed to be good at fencing. Why don't we see him fighting more? And he had this lunch with Gene Roddenberry, which resulted the next day in this four-page memo that he sent, which you can go and look it up online. It's referred to unofficially by a lot of people as the sex and shooting memo, because he basically lays out what he would like from the character. Um, I don't think he talks about sex explicitly, but he certainly talks about having more relationships. Um, and he does talk about this idea of, you know, is there a shooting range on the Enterprise? Well, this is something we do get to see later on. He wants more of a kind of action-adventure element to Picard, not just the kind of aloof patrician captain who sort of never gets his hands dirty. And I think what's interesting is this is the episode that really makes good on that promise that the producers have kind of made to Patrick Stewart to show another side of his character. And it does it quite explicitly, I would say, by borrowing from the Indiana Jones franchise. There are so many elements in Captain's Holiday that seem to be taken from Indiana Jones. It can't possibly be a coincidence that when they want to try and redefine Captain Picard as a kind of, as an action hero, they go to Indiana Jones as the model for it. And I think that is a strange choice in some ways. You could say Patrick Stewart, Indiana Jones, it's not an obvious match made in heaven. And yet somehow it seems to work. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, but at the same time, we've always been kind of told that Picard is really into archaeology. He really likes history, right? So already there were kind of elements of like, if you introduce an action adventure component to it, given the fact that he's so into archaeology and history, you know, etc., that, you know, there were the, the comparisons were going to have to be made. I mean, it doesn't help the fact that he's like after an artifact. And yes, the artifact is like from the future. And, and I mean, I think the, the to me, there's, there is the captain as an adventurer slash interest in archaeology looking for artifacts, uh, which obviously if you say that to anybody, they're going to say Indiana Jones. But to me, mm-hmm. like the, the kind of the, the, the biggest comparison is in Vosh. I mean, Vash is definitely Marion Ravenwood, like, like a hundred percent, like, like there's no, like to me, even, I don't know if the actress who played Vash, um, her name is escaping me right now. Um, which by the way, you know, she ended up having a very long, like relationship with Patrick Stewart. I, I remember, uh, reading many years ago about this and, um, and, but like very, very serious relationship. Um, they, they were engaged, I think, at one point. Yeah, they were definitely no. They were engaged. It, like you know, I think Patrick Stewart was married at the time. I mean, now we're spreading just like gossip, but like, yeah, he was he was married at the time, and his wife was in England, and he had this like affair with this woman, and they were engaged. Right. And there's all I remember seeing pictures of that. Of, of you know, she was like hanging out on the set all the time because she was on another mm-hmm. show and blah blah blah. But they, um, but she was basically Marion Ravenwood. And by the way, I don't. Uh, I don't say that criticism. I think Marion Ravenwood is one of the, the greatest, uh, like, um, female protagonists of any action adventure movie. She's amazing. There's a reason she's the one. I mean, I know you, you won't deign to watch it again, but there's a reason that of all of Indiana Jones's love interests, she's the one who they bring back for the fourth film. Correct. And who knows, possibly the fifth. I don't know. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, she's, you know, and she's very much in that, in that kind of Princess Leia mold of being extremely, you know, what you want in a heroine, very kind of, uh, she talks back and she fights and she's just, you know, she's in, 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 in every respect his equal. Right. 
Um, mm. and, and, and I think Vash was very much like that. I mean, they, when, when it comes to the episode, Ira Burr, which I always find amazing that like, I, I, this was Ira Burr's first kind of, I know he worked with Ron Moore on it, but like, this was his first basically solo script for Star Trek. Uh, it just mm-hmm. seems, especially when we know who Ira Burr becomes within the franchise and what he does with Deep Space Nine and how he takes that show and, and, and evolves that show. I find it very, um, it's, it's just an, it's just quirky that his first like solo script for Star Trek is Captain's Holiday, right? It is, absolutely. It sort of almost gives you a new insight on some of those slightly oddball Ferengi episodes or something. It's a kind of reminder yeah. that Ira Burr has a kind of, yeah, a sort of quirky sense of humour, as well as doing the big, dark, you know, serious, serialised, uh, kind of heavy stuff. It, he, he does the kind of slightly off-the-wall stuff as well. And, and I think here it really works. I mean, Patrick Stewart must have been happy with it. He was certainly getting what he asked for. He got the sex, you know, they have that scene in the cave. He yeah. got the, I don't know, I can't remember if there's much shooting. He definitely, he gets to punch someone. That's quite exciting. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. he gets the kind of the action-adventure stuff. I mean, it's interesting, you know, Last time we spoke, we were looking at James Bond as this kind of model of what I described as a kind of toxic masculinity. Indiana Jones, obviously, is another model of masculinity. And again, a character who we might say, he's not the nicest guy. He doesn't treat women in the best possible way. You know, at times he can seem a bit sleazy. He can seem a bit creepy. He's a bit of a misanthrope. Um, he's not like Picard at all. Although in some ways, at the start of Captain's Holiday, he's more like Indiana Jones uh, and more like Harrison Ford, it must be said, uh, than probably at any other point in Star Trek. Picard is in a really bad mood. He's grumping around, he's moaning, he's complaining. He seems pretty misanthropic himself. So there's this weird sort of element that uh, they've almost kind of turned him into a parody of Harrison Ford at that point, this kind of grumpy guy who, who just complains about everything. But I think there's also this element that Indiana Jones himself is a bit of a paradox. You know, he's the professor uh, and he even has the glasses and everything when he's giving his lectures and teaching his class. And then he's also this kind of heroic adventurer who's incredibly brave and strong and tough and, you know, has the chiseled body. I mean, in Temple of Doom, we, you know, get the shots of Harrison Ford's naked chest and so on. In Captain's Holiday, we get to see Patrick Stewart's muscles probably for the first time in Next Gen. And, you know, one of the few times up until we get to um, First Contact, again, you, you sort of get those shots. There are these sort of strange parallels between these two characters. But, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark is sort of the iconic indie film. But this episode, Captain's Holiday, isn't coming out hot on the heels of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's actually coming out closer to Last Crusade. So by that point, you know, we've seen as we think, the closure of Indy's story. We've seen that trilogy. We've seen Sean Connery, a former Bond, come in as Indy's father. And there is that kind of parallel between those two franchises. I mean, Steven Spielberg wanted to direct a Bond film. In some ways, Indiana Jones was a sort of, not quite a consolation prize, but it it was sort of him showing he could do that kind of movie. He could do that kind of action adventure thing. And there is a definite um, connection, I think, between Bond as this kind of British archetype and India as this sort of Americanized version of that. They have a lot of qualities in common uh, that the kind of, as I say, that kind of slightly misanthropic attitude, the sense of humour, the action heroics and so on, but on very different sides of the pond and, and playing out in very different ways. And I think it's interesting that both these iconic figures should find their way into Star Trek one way or another. No, I mean, completely. But I mean, I think I think as well, I mean, we were saying this, um, we were saying this when we were talking about Bond, um, you know, at the end of the day, Star Trek is created by people who love 
who, by, by writers and producers and directors and actors who have their own pop cultural influences, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, they have things that they grew up with, you know, in the, in the sense of Ron Moore, he was as obsessed with Star Trek as we are, you know, he just got on, mm-hmm. he just went on, he became a writer and he went on to work on Star Trek. But, you know, if he hadn't, and it was modern times, you better believe that Ron Moore would be, you know, be on track of him talking about, you know, TOS episodes, right? <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. but, but I think, I think, you know, it, 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 you're right. It's not off fresh off the heels of Raiders or Temple of Doom. It was, you know, I think it's, it's a third season episode, right? So it would have come out in 89 or 90. Last Crusade came out in 89. So it would have been around the same time. But I do think that when, you know, when Ron Moore is writing a spy, uh, a, a Bond spoof, he's doing it from a place of absolute love and adoration for his pop cultural influences, right? Um, so I think it's it's not surprising to me that if you were going to turn our archaeology loving captain into a little bit of an of an action hero, that they'd lean into both both consciously and subconsciously into Indiana Jones. But but it's it, I think it's wonderful though. I think it's like I think it works too. I love uh, I love that kind of Picard um, the Picard of 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 um what do you call it gambit and the picard of captain's holiday where he really kind of leans into this action adventurer slash you know archaeologist and it is certainly an opportunity to see another side of it i mean one thing we should probably mention when we're talking about captain's holiday and ira bear is of course this is something that he's talked about various times there was another version of this episode that we never got to see insofar as when he was working on it, he went and had this meeting with Gene Roddenberry and Roddenberry had all these ideas, which in some ways I think, you know, would have been a much more groundbreaking episode. I mean, Roddenberry doing the kind of world building thing was thinking, okay, what does this pleasure planet look like in the future? What kind of an opportunity is this to show something different? He wanted to have same sex relationships. He wanted to have, you know, a, a lot more sex implied to be going on. And and it is implied in the episode. You know, we've got the hall gown, we've got all these, you know, women sort of throwing themselves at Picard and, and him basically saying, go away, I want to read my boring book. Um, but Roddenberry's version would definitely have been a lot more sort of transgressive for the time and a lot more radical. Um, And then you've got, of course, Rick Berman coming in and representing the much more sort of staid, much more conventional, much more heterosexual view. He apparently said to Ira Bear, just get the captain laid. That was his kind of mission statement for the episode. Okay, so Patrick Stewart wants sex and shooting, just get the captain laid. That's what you need to do here. And of course, you know, it's, it's something that he achieves. But it does kind of raise this question what would Roddenberry's version of this have looked like? Because I think that would have been absolutely fascinating. I mean, who knows? Maybe he'd have made another one like when he worked on The Lieutenant and ended up making this episode about racism that didn't get broadcast. You know, maybe I I feel like that would have been bolder. I feel like that would have been much more interesting in a way. Whereas we got the kind of 90s Trek version. We got the kind of sanitized version. I mean, who knows? If we ever go back to Riser and Discovery, we might get the full kind of, uh, you know, bells and whistles there. We, We might get more of an insight into what that planet is actually like and what kind of stuff is going on there. And it might be a lot more interesting. I, I would agree that it'd probably be a lot more interesting for sure. And a lot more fun. Um, <laughs> I do think, I, you know, it's so funny. We're having this discussion fresh off 
the the back of kind of lower decks doing what I thought was that amazing episode. Uh, the name is escaping me right now. Where you know, obviously they're they ha- they're doing all these simulations and they go and and Mariner does kind of right, the naked yeah. time and people are like, mm. what? You know, on Twitter, all these people were like, <laughs> what is this? You know, naked. And I'm like, I'm like. Do you know anything about Gene Roddenberry? Have you never read any of yeah. like the behind the scenes? Like this, that is quite literally the future. Gene Roddenberry's that's yeah, Gene's that's vision right there. Yeah, hashtag Gene's vision. Okay, <laughs> and 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 I think you know you talking about this is a hundred percent. I think Gene uh, at the end of uh, you know at, like in the late eighties, early nineties, from everything that you've re- everything that you've read. He was really pushing for that kind of stuff. And obviously they revisit Riza mm. you know, countless times over the franchise history. And I mean, they even, they, they, you know, they talk about it in Lower Decks. They've talked about it in almost in every incarnation of Star Trek, right? Definitely every Berman era show has had, um, has either mentioned or has had an episode on Riza. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's hilarious to me that people talk about Gene's vision and, uh, when, when it was very clear that Gene himself would have loved this very kind of progressive, uh, uh, very kind of sexually open society, one that Picard was supposed to kind of like indulge himself in. Absolutely. I mean, it is weird. I think Risa, in all the incarnations, when we see it, it does always seem sort of surprisingly tame somehow. Now, of course, we understand why this is 90s Trek. It's got to be in syndication. It's it's all under the kind of Berman sphere one way or another. It, it's never as sexy, even as that Justice Planet, though, you, you know, where everyone's yeah, nothing. around in their skimpy outfits. And, and there's this sort of sense of sexual tension there. Risa really feels so... Uh, it does feel like a package holiday. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like an adventure. It doesn't feel like somewhere where boundaries are crossed or anything particularly exciting happens. It, it is like, you know, a kind of Thomas Cook holiday somehow. You get to uh, hang out by the pool and, and do pottery and, and <laughs> kind of other wholesome pursuits almost. So I think there is a weird sort of paradox there. Um, but obviously for Picard, you know, it works out this vacation that he's not looking forward to, that everyone on the ship wants him to have apart from him. It works out because he gets swept into a kind of classic Star Trek adventure. And I suppose one way of looking at it is he gets to be Captain Kirk for once instead of always being Captain Picard. He gets to, as you say, indulge that other side of his personality. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. We, I was thinking about Captain Kirk the moment you started describing Picard. And the reality, one of the reasons we love Captain Picard is that he's not Captain Kirk, right? I have nothing against mm. Captain Kirk. I love Captain Kirk. But, you know, when the, when they were designing Next Generation off the back of the, the massive success that Voyage Home was, right, they were they knew that the, the, the protagonist of the show could in no way, shape, or form remind people of Captain Kirk. They knew they were going to make a fifth movie, and, and, and they had ambitions to potentially make even more than five movies, right? They knew very much that the original series crew – um, particularly the big three, Captain Kirk leading the pack, was still going to be around. So they needed to differentiate the captains tremendously. And they did a hundred percent. And it's, and it's the fact that Picard is the diplomat and not the, you know, action hero. It's, he's not the womanizer, you know, Kirk, Riker is Kirk, right? In many ways. Yeah. Right. In, in being the womanizer and like the, the, um, uh, you know, the action adventure leading the away teams, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what I love about Picard. I love that Picard's an academic. You know, I don't get me wrong. I love Gambit. I love Picard, you know, having adventures and getting laid and, and, and doing all those things. 
but that's not the Picard I like. I like long for. I want like Picard the lawyer. You know, I want him like giving a speech at a, at a trial. That's the Picard I love. It's kind of TV Picard versus movie Picard, isn't it? I mean, I suppose Completely. Picard really is is closer to what we get in this episode. It's closer to what Patrick Stewart obviously was kind of longing to play, and you can understand why. I mean, it, it probably is a bit more fun. It you know, from his point of view, it's great to be able to do these kind of action scenes. I mean, in that memo, he says basically, you know. I'm as fit as all these Americans. I can do everything they can do. I'm not some kind of crusty old man who can't do the stunts anymore. You know, basically give me this stuff to do and I'll do it. And of course it's true over and over again. I mean, First Contact is probably the most obvious example. Okay, everyone in that film has kind of got in shape. I think Jonathan Frakes is kind of in the best shape we've ever seen him in that film, certainly for decades. But Patrick Stewart has clearly been spending a lot of time in the gym. There's a kind of, there's a point to be made there. There's something to be proven there, I think, is is how it comes across. It was obviously very important to him to be seen as potentially at least a man of action as well as a man of ideas as well as the diplomat but I think you're right it kind of goes against what we love about Next Generation I mean growing up you know Picard Picard probably is my favourite character in all of Star Trek and I think a lot of that does come down to those qualities that we love about him that he is very cool he is very calm he's very reasonable he's you know a kind of rational person he's thoughtful he doesn't rush to action you know I don't have that affection for Captain Kirk. I like Captain Kirk. I think he's a great character. I, you know, really enjoy William Chapman's performances. I think he does great work. But I don't have anywhere near that kind of relationship with Kirk as a character that I do with Picard. He doesn't mean something to me in the same way. Um, and I think in some ways, it's a shame that Stuart was so committed to trying to sort of push away from that. I mean, I think it works fine here. I think, you know, on the whole, it's it's perfectly fine to show different sides of the character. But I do think that sometimes there's a kind of input from him that isn't necessarily totally helpful. The scene that, that really bothers me along those lines, I suppose, is in Nemesis. It's that, you know, kind of dune buggy scene. That I hated that when I first saw it at the cinema and I've never managed to get past it. And th- that's a film I don't like generally for, for many reasons. I have problems with it. But that is the point where that film sort of turns somehow for me into something that I'm, you know, struggling to go along with. And I think it is this sense, okay, I can believe Picard in this storyline. I can believe Picard in Gambit, partly because he's going along with the ruse. I can kind of, you know, accept seeing these other sides of the captain's personality. But by the time we get to that scene in Nemesis, I sort of feel this is just Patrick Stewart having fun because he likes driving fast cars. I mean, he was on Top Gear as the celebrity in a reasonably prized car or whatever it is that that feature they used to run. He he did quite well on the on the, you know, racing task in Top Gear. He's a fan of these things. But Captain Picard is not. I don't really buy that Captain Picard is into, you know, high octane vehicles the way that Patrick Stewart might be. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that you said. I actually love that scene in Nemesis, and I think that if I had to choose, that's probably my favorite scene in all of Nemesis. Oh in, my god! <laughs> in large part because one, I love that how it. I love this how the scene looks first and foremost. Right? It's like I, cause I as a pitch kid, black, you know, yeah, yeah, I, uh, like that yeah, sepia grading, kind of sound. Grading, basically, isn't it? I, I think it worked so well, and it was such like a very cool like. They're on an alien planet. Let's make this look really alien and different to everything else that has come before. And I really love that. Um, I don't mind him driving that fast car. I really like the dune buggy, the Argo, whatever it's called. Um, I actually kind of like it. And I love the, the joke of like, you know, yeah, I'll go try the Argo. But the larger point, I, I agree with 100%. That's not the Picard 
I prefer. I think Picard, action Picard works in certain instances. I agree with you. I think it works in Captain's Holiday. Mm -hmm. I think it works in Gambit. I actually think it works really well in First Contact because Mm -hmm. he's the only one. He's the captain of the ship. He's not, he's going to go down with the ship and he's the only one because of the history with the Borg that can go and save data. You buy it. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. It is part of the story, right? You know, in generations, it makes, you know, like, it's less action Picard and it's more about stopping Soren and he does it with Kirk. And yes, there's like a little bit of like three old man fighting, but like it kind of works, right? Um, it do- I agree with you that it doesn't really work in, I don't think it works in insurrection. Why is he the only one build, like beaming over to like the Sona? Like what? Beam over with the team, you know? <laughs> like, uh, um, and, and, and I think in Nemesis, it, it, it doesn't quite work as well, but, I disagree with this scene. I actually love that scene. And I, it is one of my only scenes in all of Nemesis where I'm like, this is great. Um, but we don't have, that can be, that can be, that's a topic for a different podcast. I, I think, I, yeah, this is, <laughs> this could be a massive digression. The, 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 the massive digression. But, but this is why, this is why sometimes, this is why that, the, you know, it's not necessary. I agree with you. Patrick Stewart. Yes. He's, he, you know, he plays the character, but the best elements of Picard and why I think most people love Picard is because, as discussed, he's not Kirk. He's the academic. Hmm. He's the one that's going to give the speech, right? And those are the be- – when you think of Picard's finest moments, the best moments of Picard, it's like, you know, drumhead Picard, right? That's yeah. what you want. That's what you want. It's, 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 you know, it, I think – and they did that beautifully in, in, in Picard the series, you know? His yeah. – his, I thought his, some of his speeches, um, in fact, I've really adopted and I use this, uh, in, at work all the time of like one impossible thing at a time. I say that like, and, and like colleagues at work have all adopted that, right? Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's the best version of the card. And it goes back to the whole, you know, uh, this is a much larger discussion of, you know, Nicholas Meyer not being a Star Trek fan at all and coming in and being like, I'm going to take what I think is the best of all of this and truly distill it down to its basic cores and, 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 and run with it. Right. And I think Patrick, I could understand Patrick Stewart, not wanting to play the exact same thing or the exact type of thing over and over again and wanting to inject some action. But to your point, it, it, that's not what anybody wants in that character. At least I think. You're right. Absolutely. Drumhead Picard. Uh, when you say giving the speech, I mean, you're right. It's, it's the kind of wise Picard. It's, it's the wisdom yeah. of Picard, but also the rhetoric of Picard and Patrick Stewart, the Shakespearean actor who, you know, can knock out an amazing monologue. I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? It's the performance and it's the kind of gravitas. But funnily enough, when you said giving the speech, actually, the first thing that flashed through my head wasn't those great speeches, you know, the kind of combined wisdom of Captain Picard. What immediately came to my mind thinking about this topic was the episode Cupid, where he gives that tedious, sort of deliberately comedically bad speech about the archaeology. And I think that's quite interesting because that's the other side of archaeology, Picard, is, you know, he's an archaeology geek. He, he, he It's quite dreary. It's quite dull. It's not cool at all. You know, he's yeah. not being Indiana Jones in that context. He is being the captain who's like fascinated by all this rather dry ancient stuff from these dead civilizations and everyone else is a bit baffled by it you know that's one of those episodes where there's that kind of real 
barrier in that sense between him and the crew. And of course, he has to learn to kind of embrace his passions and embraces his love for um, Vash and, and kind of, you know, play the action hero. He, he gets pushed into it, goaded into it by Q, essentially, into being, okay, not Indiana Jones this time, but Robin Hood. But there's that kind of there's that balance, isn't there? There's those two sides of the character. But I love that episode. And I love the way that he gives that rather boring speech. And and the kind of, you can see, it's quite sweet in a way. You can see Picard's excitement over this stuff that really doesn't necessarily connect with anyone else or with the audience. And you get it again uh, in the chase, you know, all that stuff with the Curlin Nyskos, uh, which his old professor brings him. And, you know, the the glee with which Patrick Stewart plays his opening of this thing and trying to explain to Riker how significant it is. And Riker's just like, you know, yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know, it means nothing to him whatsoever. Um, it's brilliant, I think. It, I think that does really fit with Picard's character and it kind of, it adds an extra layer to it. And it's quite interesting that they can kind of, they can play both sides of that. But he's not, he's not Professor Jones who, you know, okay, he's got the glasses, but all the girls are in love with him. When he's doing archaeology, Professor Picard, he is absolutely uh, a geek in his own world and you know, no one else can touch him somehow. No, no, and I agree, but I think what I love that I think fans like us who are like truly obsessed, not, not just casual fans of Star Trek, but like obsessive, geeky fans of Star Trek, right? Um, I, I, you know, I think we can really see a lot of ourselves in that Picard. Mm-hmm. You know, Picard oh, gets yeah, really excited about like all this crap. And yes, we may not share that, but we get this, you know, that, that mirrors our love for Star Trek, you know? The, the, I, I can barely recall you know, anything when it comes to work or things like that, I'm like, it's, you know, at times it's a struggle, but I can recall episodes and facts and lines of dialogue from, you know, hundreds of hours worth of Star Trek. And I get so excited when I'm talking with someone like you, you know, or Lee or my friend Steven or things like that who adore and are, you know, are obsessed with Star Trek as they're obsessed with Star Trek as I am because we can geek Mm -hmm. out about them, about all the minutia, right? We can geek out about, you know, did you check out, you know, those, the nacelles on that new Starship and Lower Deck look amazing. And that kind of shit Mm -hmm. is amazing, right? And I love that element of Picard when he is like a geek about archaeology because even though I don't share the that love of archaeology uh I do share I do understand in my core what it's like to love something in an in a, it, for what it is in a massively geeky way and just like when he meets his his old mentor and professor when you're in you know, when you find kindred spirits that all that all of you love that, that ha- share that kind of geeky love for that same thing. And that's the and, and again, going back, that's the Picard that I want. I think action mm-hmm. Picard can work. We've talked about it first. It works, I think, beautifully in First Contact. I think it works really well in Captain's Holiday. Uh, it works Starship well in Starship Mine, another one. Starship where, Mine, great. Where it works that, well. But partly I think it works well in that one because it's not just, you know, fighting. It's, he's using his mind as well. He's exactly. outwitting them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's like yeah. setting the traps and so on. So it's the kind of perfect balance in that instance. Co- completely. I mean, a lot of people talk about that being... Um, you know, diehard in space, but I kind of think mm-hmm. it's a little bit more home alone, home alone in, space. in space. Yeah, yeah. it's totally home alone <laughs> in space. Yeah. It's a hundred percent. 
you know, uh, you know, figuring out how he's going to kill Tuvok with like, uh, with like someone's archery equipment, you know, and a saddle or something. Um, yeah. but yeah, completely. So I do think action Picard can work and you don't want the same note over and over and over again. Right. But like geeky archaeology Picard, that's who I'm going to show up for every day. It's interesting mentioning this idea of a mentor. I mean, in The Chase, we find out, because we meet Picard's archaeology mentor, and we find out this is one of those episodes where he sort of talks about a path not taken. You know, he wasn't always necessarily going to be the great Starfleet captain. He could actually have been a professional archaeologist. He could, we're told, have been the premier archaeologist of his generation. I mean, that's quite a big claim. This is not just uh, a hobby. They they sort of talk about it. He says, you know, he's just a, a dilettante archaeologist. He's just kind of dabbling. But potentially, he could have really taken this career seriously and gone somewhere with it. But I think it's interesting. We get these mentor characters. So he has this mentor. Uh, you know, in Indiana Jones, we have these mentor characters mm-hmm. that um, that go missing. I mean, Picard's mentor, we see him, he dies, he leaves this mystery uh, sort of unsolved that they have to pick up. Same thing happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Marion's father is Indy's mm-hmm. old mentor. He's disappeared. He's going on the trail of them. He's the sort of initial MacGuffin, in a sense, before we get to the Ark and find out that mm-hmm. that's, that's really what we're looking for. Um, and Vash as well has this mentor who Picard is familiar with and who I think has has died and that's how she's got on the trail of the Toxu Tut. So there's this sort of idea that archaeology is something that is passed down the generations mm-hmm. somehow and there are always these these old men basically, these kind of crusty old men in the background. And in the indie films we even get it with... Um, I can't remember his name, the guy who works Marcus. in his department and he's... Yeah, so he's he's there in the first film. I think he's there in he the He got lost in his own museum! Exactly, exactly. And great, you know, comedic character. And he even plays a role in the fourth film. I'm guessing the actor had died and certainly the character had died, but they have a life-size statue of him that plays a role in, you know, again, one of these slightly clunkily, weird, wacky, silly action sequences. But the head falls off his statue and ends up, you know, blocking the, the baddie's path in some way. So they kind of find a way of working him in yet again. There always seems to be these kind of, these old guys lingering in the background of these stories somehow. It's it's a strange element of it for, maybe it's because it's a kind of action-adventure genre that we need to have the kind of more conventional uh, image of the professor, the more conventional archaeologist who doesn't do all the action stuff to differentiate them from the younger generation who do. And I guess in Last Crusade, we have that even with Indy's father. I mean, you've got Sean Connery, famous action star, former James Bond, and yet he is playing this sort of slightly bumbling professor character. Yeah, but it's almost like, you know, like it's the, it's it's always the excuse that the non-fighter slash non uh, you know, the, the, the archaeologist, the archaeologist is mm. going to need that spark, that kick in the ass. And, you know, what better kick in the ass than, uh, to get you going on an adventure than like trying to rescue or find, you know, that father figure mentor who basically, mm. who, who basically put you on this path that you're on. Right. And it, and you're right. It happens in the chase brilliantly, by the way. I mean, that to me, is a top 10 episode of Next Generation. If I could only pick 10 episodes of Next Generation 
on a desert island, the chase would be front and center. I adore that episode, not only because it's a great story and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful kind of like, you know, epic, the epicness of the story, but I love the fact that it is, um, it's infinitely rewatchable. You can watch that episode over and over and over and over again, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and not get tired of it. Right. And I do think that, you know, the, that archaeologist archetype needs a kick, a swift kick in the butt. And what better way of doing it than, uh, than, you know, the, the, the father figure. In some cases, in, in Indy's case, you had, um, what is it? Abner Ravenwood, um, being kind of the father he never really had, who was present and who encouraged him. And then in Last Crusade, you quite literally have his father. Right. Um, and, and Picard definitely with his mentor in the chase. That is a very interesting point. And in the chase, he quite explicitly says that this mentor was the father that he never had. I mean, Picard's actual father was obviously a very difficult man. He didn't have a good relationship with him. He had a much better relationship with Professor Galen. And he says also Galen had issues with his own family, but he had a better relationship with Picard. So there is a kind of surrogate father-son element to the story there. But it's also fascinating, actually, thinking about it, because the Indiana Jones movies, in some ways, they are about fatherhood in in different guises. I'd really recommend anyone who's interested to listen to Darren Mooney's podcast, The 250, because they did a season recently, and Tony Black uh, of this parish was a sort of guest host for that, because he, like you, is a monumental Indiana Jones fan. And so they covered all the films, and one of the themes that they really picked up on going through them was this sort of interrogation of fatherhood and the relationship relationship between the father and the son and, and what that means. And I suppose you could say, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but archaeology is kind of reaching back. It's reaching back to our ancestors. It's kind of working out where we've come from and, and what's the relationship between the ancient and the modern. You know, maybe there's something in that parallel there. But certainly in the Indiana Jones films, I mean, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I found this very interesting. They describe as a divorce movie. This was Darren Moon. Yeah, definitely. This is a divorce movie. And this is a film that comes about, you know, you've got this bickering couple at the centre of it. I mean, and the love interest in Temple of Doom, uh, they you feel like they really do hate each other, to be perfectly honest. I mean, yeah, there's chemistry there. And there's that kind of the Hollywood cliche of the bickering lovers, which, of course, we get in Captain's Holiday. I mean, fashion, Picard, they mm. bicker and then they snog and then they get together. And, you, you know, that's kind of an element of their romance in that kind of uh, generic trope in a way but you kind of really feel in Temple of Doom uh, these two there's no positive relationship is going to come out of this this is going to end in tears one way or another Last Crusade obviously we get Indy's father very difficult relationship he won't even call him by his name you know they're they're squabbling over something as fundamental as that and then of course you know I know you don't want to think about it but Kingdom of the Crystal Skull we've got Shia LaBeouf as Indy's long lost son and here finally Indy is the father himself and you know that is a big strand of the storyline there so in all these Indiana Jones films that's something that kind of you know, that is a thread that holds them together one way or another. And and I think it's interesting that when we get to the chase and we get this kind of reprise of Picard, the archaeologist in a major way, that's something that gets picked up on once again. Yeah. I mean, by the way, your point about Temple of Doom being a divorce movie, it was quite literally a divorce movie. George Lucas was very famously getting divorced from Marsha Lucas Mm -hmm. during the time of the writing and production of, and Lucas himself. And Spielberg too, I think. He was going through a breakup of some kind. Is that right? Well, he was, I don't know exactly. I mean, I know that obviously he, him and Kate Capshaw, 
who is the mm-hmm. love interest in Temple of Doom, um, yeah. is, you know, get together during that film and they're still, and they're, you know, very famously still married 40 years later, right? Um, mm. and all of, and, and I want so to, he got on better with her than it, Indiana Jones did. It, 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 exactly. But he captured <laughs> yeah. that and him meet at this, but it was quite literally both Spielberg and Lucas were having, you know, being divorced and having marital issues. And so that definitely made itself, that was projected onto the film and it's all, it's written, it's all over that film. But I think that's what's interesting. And they've got a child you. in the film as well. They've got Short Round who's there exactly. kind of along for well, the ride see, and gets it, to it, witness it, all their bickering. You know? Totally. But I think that that's the issue that, you know, that's where in many ways Raiders is him trying to, you know, what the, the what kickstarts that film is him trying to find Abner, right? And, mm. and his surrogate father in Temple of Doom, yeah. he's 100%, he's the surrogate father to Short Round. Right. He treats mm-hmm. short round as in many ways, as if he was his child. Right. Yeah. And takes care of him. And, and, and it's, it's, it's 100% that like absent father, surrogate father type relationship. And then to your point about last crusade, he's quite literally with his father and fighting about, you know, the fundamental core of their relationship and him trying to make sense of it. So he goes from, you know, being a child looking for his father to kind of being a father figure to then quite literally being with his father. Um, and, and it's just, yeah, it's really, I think it's really, really interesting and something about that ties all of the Indiana Jones films to date. There's, there's a kind of common denominator no matter what's happening. It's a relationship between the, the father figure and the son. It raises an interesting question, of course, over, uh, you know, the new film and what that's going to be about. Are we going to see Grandfather Picard? I mean, uh, not Grandfather. Are we going to see Grandfather Indiana Jones? I mean, I feel we kind of got Grandfather Picard in the first season of Picard. His relationship totally. with Soji, I guess because Data is a kind of surrogate child to Picard. Soji is, you know, essentially Data's daughter. So she is treated almost like Picard's granddaughter. I feel like that comes across quite strongly in that relationship. Who knows? I don't know, you know, I don't know much about the casting. I don't know who was up in Glasgow uh, with Harrison Ford, but it feels like given his age, that would be one direction they might choose to take the character. Uh, Completely. And I think, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens with, um, I'm also really intrigued about what they're going to do with Picard in season two. Um, I loved, I loved Picard, like loved it. And like Lower Decks can't quite believe that something like that actually exists. Um, but, but you know, I like, it'd be interesting to see given the finale, which I think was probably my least favorite episode of all of Picard. Um, it's interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see where they take it, but Picard's absent father and Picard's relationship with his family, like Indiana Jones, you know, is, 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 is extremely problematic. And unlike Indiana Jones, Picard, yes, he makes up with his brother, but then his brother very tragically dies, uh, because of, you know, drama. Uh, he, he is, uh, you know, they, they, the characters definitely share that lack of, uh, that lack of, 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 loving, encouraging father figure and both characters get it from an archaeology professor. <laughs> they do, absolutely. And actually, interestingly, I mean, in The Last Crusade, there's this whole uh, issue around the fact that Indy won't take his father's name. You know, he's literally supposed to have his father's name and he rejects it and decides to name himself after the dog instead. Well, Picard, by the time we get to Gambit, he has literally taken his archaeology professor's name. That's the alias that he's going by, is Galen. Completely, completely. 
Uh, no, and that, and that is absolutely fascinating. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of differences between the characters, but when you start breaking it down like this in terms of their relationship with their fathers uh, and their surrogate fathers and their love for archaeology, you all of a sudden start thinking, oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe the characters are not that different. I think Gambit is an interesting one as well, partly because in some ways it, it does lean into the sort of action adventure element a little more. Maybe the fact that it's feature length, the fact that it's two episodes. I mean, I have to say it's never been one of my favourite Next Gen episodes. I always sort of feel as a two-parter, it's maybe a little bit slight. It's got sort of slightly more than you would fit into one episode, but maybe, I don't know, I, I always feel as they could have crammed a little bit more in given that they have that kind of 90 minute runtime but it's an interesting one we do get a lot of these tropes kind of reappearing we get Picard in leathers for a start you know we get a little bit more of a gesture to the sort of the more rugged look of Indiana Jones which we also get to be fair in Captain's Holiday when he's sort of stripped down and you know with his guns out and digging in the cave or whatever um we also get a lot of these other tropes that crop up in all these episodes. I mean, the magical artifact is absolutely central. We've got the Tox Utat in uh, Captain's Holiday, very powerful artifact. Not magical, but it comes from the future. In Gambit, we've got this amazingly powerful artifact. Um, and this, of course, you know, goes right back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, wh- what does the Ark represent? Is it just something... Is it just something that is a kind of historically significant artifact that belongs in a museum? Or is it a potential weapon? Is it something that can be weaponized, that can be used somehow? Um, and that is a thread that kind of goes through the Indiana Jones movies. You know, you have these characters who want to find something. It's kind of knowledge for knowledge's sake. Picard is much more aligned with that. You know, he wants to probably... Well, he doesn't actually want to put the Toxu Tut in a museum. He wants to hand it over to the Vorgons, initially at least. But there is a kind of sense that until we start to see through their plan, they seem like curators. They they sort of come from the future. They they're kind of interested in the past. The the um the idea at least, the ruse at least, is that they are these kind of curatorial figures and he seems to be wanting to hand it over to them. Vash wants to sell it and make a quick buck. In the Indiana Jones films, you know, you've got this contrast between um, Bilok, actually, who I think is interested in the arc uh, as an archaeologist. You know, he is a serious archaeologist. And then the Nazis that he's working for who want to take it to Hitler, they want to see what they can do with it. There's always this kind of balance between, you know, the potential power of these artefacts and the kind of magic associated with them, frankly, um, and the the kind of conflict between that. I mean, Indiana Jones is a bit of a rationalist, at least to begin with. He's sort of saying, look, there's nothing mystical here. This is just an object. You know, we're going to find it. We're going to put it in its right place. We're going to contextualize it and so on. But as those films go on, they get increasingly magical to the point where, you know, by the time of Crystal Skull, we get these aliens appearing. Um, But, you know, I found that ridiculous when I watched it in the cinema. When I went back and rewatched the films recently, you know, the previous film, We've had an Arthurian knight who's been magically alive for thousands of years. I mean, you know, these are not films that are kind of trading essentially in reality. They do always end with an interaction with something divine, mystical, magical, kind of inexplicable. And when Star Trek borrows from these uh, movies, we get the same sort of thing. So we get that Vulcan artifact in Gambit um, that has this incredible power, but it also has sort of mystical qualities. It can sense what the person who's um, using it is feeling. Uh, a little bit like this idea of, you know, the word, the person who's worthy to take something, these kind of tests of worthiness, these tests of character that play into these archit- that play into these artifacts in something like Last Crusade. Um, and we've got even in a DS9 episode, we've got the Sword of Kalos. Well, Sword of Kalos is basically Excalibur that they go looking for. And it has some of those qualities as well. It's got a kind of Lord of the Rings aspect in that it seems to affect the personality of the people wielding it. But it also has this aspect of 
is it going to be Worf wants to discover it as a kind of great discovery. He's the sort of archaeologist figure. He wants to um, present it to everyone, to the Empire. He thinks it might unify them, but it's a sort of symbolic thing. Um, Kor seems to be interested in it as a source of power as much as anything else. You know, do you find these things, do you go searching for these artefacts for the sake of it? Is it knowledge for knowledge's sake or is it because they're not only immensely valuable, culturally speaking, like the Kerlin Nyskos is, but because they actually have some kind of power or some meaning beyond that? And in the chase, we get that same dilemma again. You know, Picard is interested in solving the riddle, solving the puzzle, finding out the truth about humanity, the truth about the universe. The Klingon is interested in finding a weapon. He thinks that, you know, this quest they're on, they're, you know, it's kind of like that saying, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, if you're a Klingon, everything looks like a weapon. Uh, and of course, by the time we get to Sword of Kalos, it is literally a sword, it is literally a weapon that is the, the subject of the quest. But, you know, the reason you always have these different people questing, it's another one of the tropes of these films is that not only do you have the magical artifact, but the reason it's called the chase is because there's several people after it. There's always got to be multiple teams, you know, and going back to Captain's Holiday, you've got the Ferengi is after it, Picard is after it, the Vorgons are after it. Um, you know, in Gambit, you've got the, the Vulcans or Romulans, whoever it is, who are also after the artifact. Um, in the chase, you've got all these different teams essentially converging and trying to beat each other and initially at least not wanting to cooperate. And you always have these kind of scenes. I mean, at the end of the chase, when the Romulans make their appearance, everyone else has arrived and then the Romulans come in with their disruptors bared. And it's very much like the scene towards the end of pretty much every Indiana Jones film, I think, where the Nazis or the Russians or whoever it is kind of march in at the last minute and take over. And all the work that Indy and his team have done gets sort of co-opted by the baddies, essentially, as they just kind of wade in at the last minute with their superior force and say, right, we're taking this, this is ours. And then obviously that's when it becomes more about these kind of tests of character, when it becomes more about, you know, Indy choosing not to look at the Ark uh, and the, the Nazis, because they do look at it being destroyed. Uh, the, the Nazi who takes the wrong chalice in The Last Crusade because he thinks it's going to be something glorious and magnificent rather than being humble. It's that sort of sense that, you know, the story follows certain predictable beats. The The enemies, the alternatives, the rivals who are chasing the same thing, get to the same point. They all have to get there at the end, but that's when the real difference between them is revealed. And that's how the story resolves itself. A hundred percent. And that's, but ultimately that's, you know, so much of storytelling, that's what you want it to be, right? You have one person that wants to take advantage of the thing and use it to gain power. Uh, and then you have the other who is, is, is there, who's kind of like, to, to, to use your terminology, like true of character, right? You have one that chooses wisely and one that chooses, uh, uh, basically because they, they want to use, they want to use whatever it is, uh, to chooses for poorly. Game. You have exactly. chosen Choose, poorly. You have chosen, <laughs> yeah. he chose poorly. Um, yeah. I mean, by the way, the fact that that Vulcan, yeah. ancient Vulcan weapon, weapon didn't kill Worf. To this day, I'm like, nope, that's the least <laughs> believable thing of that entire episode. Worf would be dead. Um, yeah. No, no, but, but completely. And I think that it's, but it's right. It ultimately boils down to our hero rising to the challenge and being deemed worthy of character mm -hmm. and true, you know, to his or her values and also kind of society. And there's also the kind of the whole, you know, like Americans being 
you know, true and, mm-hmm. and doing what's just and what's right. And then obviously the Nazis, uh, and then the Russians later on, um, being uh, not worthy. Right. So there's, there's also kind of, you know, geopolitics at play in how these stories are always kind of told and how they always play out. Right. Well, they also involve an element of self-sacrifice. I think that's part of it. I mean, these narratives over and over again, what you have is the person who risks everything on this quest. And they are quest narratives. I mean, the reason it's called The Last Crusade, I suppose, is that, you know, it is a quest. It's a grail quest, literally, in that instance. They're not Arthurian knights, but, you know, Indian and the others, they're they're fulfilling the same role. Um and just as in the, you know, classic Arthurian stories, there is that kind of that moral question. There is that sort of um, association there about, you know, what do these things represent in a religious context versus versus what do they represent as a MacGuffin, you know, in a story, which is the thing that everyone is is trying to get hold of. But there is that sense of relinquishing has to come at the end of these stories. I mean, even in Captain's Holiday, Picard destroys the Toxutat. So having Correct. spent the episode searching for this thing, he gives it up. He gets rid of it. In Sword of Calus, they they get rid of the Sword of Kalos. I mean, the last shot of the episode, is it floating away in space? They've gone through all this effort to find this thing and they deliberately allow it to be lost again. There is this kind of sense of, you know, the true hero is the one who finds what he was searching for, but doesn't keep it. He gives it up. He decides that actually it's better to turn away from it, to not even look at it in the case of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, And that, that somehow is the kind of the spiritual conclusion of the quest. And it is, I suppose, a very sort of medieval, uh, spiritual kind of religious interpretation. I mean, you know, as we're recording quite recently, the, the film, the long awaited film of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has come out. I mean, that's, I haven't seen the movie yet, but you know, that's a story again, which is about a kind of action adventure quest. But ultimately it comes down to, you, you know, in this kind of classic medieval, uh, sort of Arthurian courtly tradition, it comes down to a test of character. It comes down to sort of what's inside your soul. You, you know, what kind of a man are you? What kind of a person are you? Uh, what are your values? And when you're tested, you're not just being tested in terms of physical prowess, in terms of your ability in battle. You're being tested spiritually. You're being tested in terms of the quality of your character. And of course, Star Trek is quite interesting in that regard, because we could say, particularly in this kind of 90s era of Trek, and the most so, I think, in The Next Generation, that is the show that passes that test. I mean, The Next Generation is framed as Q testing the character of humanity through Picard. And obviously, if we were going to have a representative in that trial... Picard is the one we would pick. Picard represents everything that's best about us. You know, if anyone else was up on the stand, we'd probably all have been toast, frankly. But, you know, uh, fortunately, Picard is the one who's put forward and Picard is the one who's going to give the best account of humanity in a way and give us the best chance of getting off scot-free. I mean, you put Cisco on the stand, he would have just punched Q and then that would have been over. (laughs) Trial over humanity wins. You know, um, no, no, but it's true. And I think, you know, it's funny. I was reading an essay as one does about, um, about Frodo in Lord of the Rings. So, uh, surprise, surprise. I also love Lord of the Rings. What? That's so out of character. Um, but, but yeah, the, you know, it's really interesting because obviously at the end, when he's at, he's on the edge of Mount Doom and he can destroy the ring. Frodo chooses not to, right? And, you know, that among Tolkien scholars, 
Um, and it, it's a massive point of, um, of debate and something that since the book has come out and will forever be a point of, 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 of kind of debate and what, why, you know, what was Tolkien trying to say when the purest of all of them, right? And, you know, this, this hobbit, um, you know, when the ring actually beats him, right? And it's only because of Sam, right? That, that the, that the, that they're successful, right? Now, obviously, you know, I'm not a Frodo hater or Frodo carries the ring the entire way, blah, 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 blah. But it is really, it, 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 it always boils down to character, right? And to, and can you, can you rise and beat evil? Maybe not, you know, maybe you die in the process, but at the end, you, you know, your spirit and your values win. And that's the ultimate test, right? And, and, and every single time Star Trek, whether it's, you know, whether it's the sort of Kalos or whether it's, you know, Gambit or whether it's Captain's Holiday, every single time they do a quest episode or the chase, right? It is about finding out, it, it's about knowledge for knowledge's sake. And it's about mm. achieving the quest, but then leaving it behind. Just like Indy gives up the arc and the arc ends up, you know, lost in a massive warehouse, just like he mm-hmm. gives up the stones at the end of Temple of Doom, just like, right, yeah. you know, he's like, he's like, no, I can reach it. I can reach it. And his father, uh, you know, holding on to Indiana and he, it, it, you know, his father, who's been obsessed with the grail his entire life, looks at him and he goes, let it go, Indiana. You know, he, he, he knows that it's ultimately that that's the ultimate test. That is what how you win. That's how the game is played. And, and it, this, that same trope is in every episode of Star Trek that has a quest. It's a very interesting point, isn't it? And in some ways it's counterintuitive because the quest is all about the MacGuffin. You kind of assume that the MacGuffin is, is the be all and end all. But yet, of course, ultimately it isn't. There's a line in the original series, I think, isn't there, where isn't it Spock who says that sometimes wanting a thing is better than having a thing or something along those lines. I feel like maybe that ties into it as well. And certainly from a narrative point of view, it's true. You know, the reason these quest narratives are exciting is because the stakes are high. We know that someone really, really wants something. I mean, there are a lot of obstacles in the way of them getting it. And in some ways, if they just get it and run off with it uh, at the end and it all resolves, you know, they get what they wanted, that's not particularly satisfying or interesting. Uh, there has to be a bit of a twist. It has to be a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, of course, in the chase, what we get is, although Picard is fine with making this great discovery, you, you know, they, they find out something absolutely groundbreaking about humanity, about all these species, about, you know, the history of life in the universe. The Klingons are disappointed. The Cardassians are disappointed. You know, at least half the people uh, involved in that quest go home thinking, well, that was a waste of time. You know, what did we put all that effort in for, basically? Because we didn't get anything out of it. We didn't get anything that we can use out of it. All we got was knowledge, almost, you know, knowledge for knowledge's sake. But I suppose, you know, what we're coming back to is this idea that these artefacts they represent two things. They they represent the knowledge, they represent the truth that they kind of embody, and they also represent some kind of power. So when you talk about, you know, whether Frodo can give up the ring, really what it is, is it's giving up personal power for the greater mm. good, isn't it? And I think there is something in these stories. It is a kind of very medieval mindset in some ways, and a very Christian mindset, I suppose. It is that kind of spiritual thing, you know, 
are you going to be Jesus who gives himself up and sacrifices himself for others? Do you know what I mean? Or are you going to be, you know, like Adam and Eve in the garden who take something for themselves? And I suppose that, you know, the reason we have this storyline playing out over and over again is maybe there is this idea of kind of fallen humanity. You know, humans are not perfect. Humans uh, have baser instincts. They they have that kind of desire for individual power. Everyone is susceptible to it. And certainly that's what Tolkien is doing in The Lord of the Rings. Now, Obviously, in Star Trek, we have kind of a strong case coming from Gene Roddenberry in particular. I mean, talking about Gene's vision, you know, not ironically for once. Um, Picard as the kind of exemplar of that, of saying, you know, we can be better. We can do the right thing. We can prioritise the many over the few. Uh, we can resist the lure of personal power in favour of doing the right thing. But even so, that kind of dilemma is central to these stories and it's something that plays out in all of them completely and uh, i don't even know what to say i think that was you you summed up our entire conversation you even brought it back to gene's vision just before we go i don't know if you've got any final thoughts one thing that struck me watching these episodes and going back to these indiana jones movies is there is one element there is one trope that doesn't really translate to star trek that is a massive part of of those movies and of their charm and uh, and uh, of the kind of world of Indiana Jones. And that is the element of the creepy crawlies, the snakes, the spiders, the bugs, the ants. And it's interesting because for me going back to these films, I mean, I hadn't seen Temple of Doom, I don't think, since I was about 10. And that film absolutely terrified me as a child. And going back and watching it, you you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was quite apprehensive. I felt scared going into that film, you know, as if I was going to watch The Exorcist or like, you know, a, a proper serious horror movie or something. And and then I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, okay, this isn't that bad because, you know, I'm not 10 anymore. But that snake surprise scene, I mean, I've always had a bit of a phobia of snakes. And so for me, actually, the Indiana Jones films are a bit of a struggle because as much as I enjoy them, pretty much all of them have at least one scene where I viscerally recoil from watching it. And, you know, the the visuals, the sound effects, all of it, it, it horrifies me. and I find it very difficult. That snake surprise scene has haunted me for, you know, whatever, getting on for 30 years now, I think. Um, and it's quite a brief scene. It's a small part of the film. It's not even especially significant, but you know, it, it, people talk about something living rent free in their head. That scene has lived rent free in my head in a particularly negative and unpleasant way. Star Trek, I don't think, certainly in these episodes, we don't go down that route. That's not one of the tropes that gets borrowed. I mean, Star Trek can do the kind of creepy crawlies and the body horror and stuff. We get it in the Wrath of Khan, for example, with those eels. But when it tries to port the Indiana Jones stuff in, it does it in a kind of typically clean, hermetically sealed, sterile, safe kind of Star Trekky way. It doesn't do this kind of squelchy, nasty, uh, skin crawling side of it, which, you know, is actually such a big part of the Indiana Jones, uh, world and, and, and of the, the pleasure of those films, you know, as much as the antagonists being the Nazis, uh, you know, the thing that Indiana Jones is really scared of is snakes. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've, I've never been scared of snakes, so I don't, I don't necessarily share that. I mean, it's funny that you talk about, I don't know what it was like in the UK, but, you know, when Temple of Doom came out in the US, they had to create a brand new rating for it because it wasn't, a, it, originally it was in the United States, you have, you know, films are rated G, PG, PG-13 and R. Right. And then there's NC 17 and X and things like that. But like, that's the vast, you know, the vast majority of films are those films are, are those. But originally, Temple of Doom, they created the, the PG 13 rating because it would, 
definitely wasn't R, but it definitely wasn't PG, right? And so they created this brand new rating because of Indiana Jones and because of like, you know, I mean, obviously there was the whole taking the heart out of the guy's chest and then burning them in lava. But aside from that, you know, the, uh, the creepy crawler scenes, I mean, Star Trek, I would, I would, whenever Star Trek tries to do creepy crawlers, I think it does it really poorly. Um, I mean, you do have some exceptions, obviously Wrath of Khan, um, conspiracy TNG season one, which I think is, you know, it's kind of, the effects don't quite hold up now, but it's still kind of gross and creepy. Um, but on the whole, Cervic just doesn't do creepy well, right? So I also think that like leaning into knowing your limitations, I think every single time, um, Star Trek tries to be scary, um, it just doesn't do it well. I think the only time I've ever think is what's, what's the night terrors season three, season four of TNG. When, I mean, the, the only scene that I've ever been scared of in, in 800 episodes of Star Trek is that scene where Dr. Crusher is in the cargo bay and all the bodies like go up at the same time. And everyone that's listening, you know, all the two people that aren't us that are listening to this podcast. And being like, what the hell are these geeks talking about? They know exactly what we're talking about, right? That scene in Night Terrors is just like, that's the only time I think Trek has really been scary or creepy. You see, for me, it's the scene in Schisms, actually. And, it, and it's a similar kind of feeling. It's that kind mm. of the chill going down your spine. And interesting, they're both Next Gen episodes. And you might think Next Gen was the safest, the kind of least spooky, least scary. Yeah, yeah. But that scene in Schisms where they're talking about the table. And I think it's just that kind of, and, and on a logical level, there, there are a lot of issues with that scene. It doesn't quite make sense the way the computer is responding to what it's being told and so on. How it gets it perfectly, like in, in, by, by like the third time, you're like, what? <laughs> This should take about three hours to get to that yeah. point, clearly. Yeah. But there is just something so spine chilling about that scene, about that idea of, I suppose, you know, something being done to you and you can't remember it. And you've just got these kind of glimpses at the back of your unconscious somehow. For me, that's the, that's the moment that really freaks me out. Even just talking about it, it's making me feel kind of, you, you know, that I've got a kind of chill and, and, and feel. You're going to sleep with the lights on tonight in Madrid. I know. Yeah. Hotel. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But but it's interesting. So you're right. Star Trek doesn't generally um, do those things. And, and when it does try to do them, for the most part, it doesn't necessarily do them all that well. I mean, I have to say, in terms of the creepy crawlies, for me, it's an advantage of these episodes. You know, I can enjoy the Indiana Jones films, but I know that I also have to kind of psych myself up for them because there are these elements in every one of those movies so far that I know I'm going to struggle with. Um, <laughs> and I know it sounds ridiculous. Like it's only a movie. I've been watching these films for 30 years. Uh, you know, yeah, okay. Maybe you're meant to have parental guidance, but kids enjoy them. I enjoyed them when I was a kid, but you know, there is that slight barrier there there is that slight hesitation there whereas these star trek episodes i don't have to worry about that i can enjoy you know most of those familiar tropes without having to worry about the one that um slightly sets my skin on edge well i mean we wouldn't want that absolutely not duncan but i just remember just remember sleep with the lights on tonight you who, who knows okay. who knows what rats are in the hotel or anything like that yeah, I know. Well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Well, in my globe trotting, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what creatures may have found their way into the hotel in Madrid. Yeah, you're right. Now you've probably freaked me out, Carlos. And it's an hour ahead here, so it's pretty much approaching my bedtime. Well, I mean, that's that's really all. But this why I wanted, why I agreed to do this uh, podcast in the first place I was like, <laughs> can I freak him out? You know, now that I've done it, yeah. it's done. It's done. Okay. 
Cool. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure as ever, Carlos, having you on the show and getting to talk about yet another one of these franchises that I know is beloved of you and uh, probably not as beloved of me, but certainly has played a role in in my life, uh, you know, going back a ways. If anyone listening wants to talk to you about why you should give Crystal Skull another go, or maybe why that scene in Nemesis is, you know, genuinely one of the worst pieces of Star Trek ever made and (laughs) (laughs) not the best scene in the film. What's the best way for them to find you online? Uh, Bring it on on Twitter. Uh, I guarantee you that I will not be watching Crystal Skull again and that I'm going to go YouTube (laughs) that scene from Nemesis right now because I'm an hour behind you in the UK. Um, (laughs) No, I am very active on Twitter and my handle is at Double Mac uh, because as I always say on these things, um, I love uh, my double macchiatos as much as I love my Star Trek and particularly that scene in Nemesis. So uh, come, come bring it to bring it on the Twitters, please. You're more of a Janeway than a Picard, at least in that respect. You know, it's so funny because like, OK, now we're like, I thought this was supposed to be over. But like Picard, I think Picard is my favorite captain. I love Cisco. Like, I love Cisco. Very much so. And I, I, what I love most about Cisco is that he's an amazing dad. He's a great captain, but he's an amazing dad. And, and that is still, they're all great captains, but Cisco has this one thing that none of the other captains have. But really, if I was a Star Trek captain and it isn't just because of my share with, I'm Jane, I'm like a hundred percent Janeway. I find myself agreeing with every decision. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I would do in that scenario. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a hundred percent Janeway. Well, you know, I need to get to bed, Carlos. So there's no way I'm raising the question of Tuvix tonight. But you know, maybe we'll have to come back to that on a future podcast if if you're going to say you're Janeway all the way. Oh, dude, I would. I, 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 who needs that, dude? You need Tuvok, a hundred percent. Split them up. <laughs> not even, not even a question. I killed him many times over. <laughs> team Janeway all the way. You have the ruthlessness of a Bond or an Indiana Jones who's capable of, you know, felling multiple enemies without even breaking a sweat. I well, mean, anyway, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure as always. And hopefully see you again soon. Take care. Thank you. You're blended all right.